hear the word of God from Romans chapter 7, verse 7, through chapter 8, verse 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 7, verse 7, through chapter 8, verse 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through chapter 8, verse 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us 
who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint Church. One of the pastors here at, at Waypoint. Uh, my name is Eric Weiner, and it's so good to be with you this morning. The other week, I was honored to speak at a, at a weekly meeting for one of the local college ministries in the area, and they did something that, was, that would have been strange for us. They only asked me to speak on one verse. It was, it was a breath of fresh air. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Like, can you imagine 20 minutes on just one verse, just one idea? But that's not really our style here at Waypoint, is it? Today we're covering about a chapter and a half of Romans. Just some light reading for us. We even uh, had it read a couple of times for you there, just, just to make sure you got the, the rich depth of, of the passage. Um, and hopefully you're recovering well now from the theological brain freeze that we all just experienced. So let's go ahead and jump right in. The other week when I, I preached on Romans 4, I said that the Christian story is that the God of the universe encounters real sinners and make something of our lives. Today, I want to double down on that. So I want to spend our time this morning considering how people change. In Christ, God is giving us our lives back. But how does He do it? How does He do it? If you do a little detective work, if you look through everything that we've read up in Romans up to this point, you'll notice little hints sprinkled throughout the text but in case you missed it, in case you didn't notice, Paul decides to put a spotlight on the answer right here in Romans 8. We come alive in Christ through the Spirit. When I was new to Christianity, I used to hear older Christians talk about the importance of our, of our witness as believers. They would encourage me by saying, live your life in such a way that makes other people say, whoa, I want what you have. Now, to be honest, I was always a little skeptical to hear that because I'd never heard any non-Christians say that. I'd never heard anyone say, you have something I wish I had, that I notice a, a deficiency in me that I can't seem to reconcile. There's something about you. Why don't people say that more? And I, I think one reason for that is because those who have never truly been exposed to the things of God have never tasted anything different. This is how backwards we can be. We call what is dead exciting. We believe in our deadness that we're living large. But what I've come to realize is that true faith is miracle. 
that genuine, humble followers of Jesus are surprising, even to our most secular neighbors. And I'm not even talking about overly confident religious enthusiasts who look like they have their lives together. I'm talking about people who have grown to realize, man, I'm just one mistake away from wreaking havoc on my life. Because that's how destructive my sin can be. But my God, Jesus is gracious to me. So how God manages to overcome human impossibilities, that's something we want to pay attention to. In the first seven chapters of Romans, Paul mentions the Spirit a grand total of four times. Seven chapters, four times, the Spirit gets mentioned. This is the detective work I was referring to. Three of those times speak of the Holy Spirit's role in raising us to life. The other time can be found in Romans 1 and speaks of the Spirit's empowering Jesus and His resurrection. But in Romans 8 alone, Paul refers to the Spirit 21 times. Now that's not a detail that should be lost in us. This isn't, this isn't just general math right here. This is, this is theological insight. And that doesn't mean Romans 8 is about the Spirit. But rather, Romans 8 is about what it means to truly be alive. And there is no life apart from the Spirit. But before we discuss our new lives in the Spirit, we must first understand what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Paul has talked about the, the law several times so far in, in Romans, and, and generally he's referring to the law of Moses, and this time it's no different. That's his subject. But here in Romans 7, Paul asks a really odd question. In Romans 7, 7, he asks, is the law sinful? That's a, that's a strange question. Why, why would Paul ask that? And I think the answer is something of a paradox, which is great for us, because at Waypoint, we, we like tension. We, we like living in the tension. And Paul is asking us to consider the tension here. And so this is the paradox of the law that Paul is talking about. The law is good because it exposes and increases our weakness to sin. That's what makes the law good. Which brings us to our first encouragement. We need to identify sin as sin. We need to learn to identify sin as sin. So, so this is a confusing development. The law is good because it exposes our sinfulness. It shows us not only that we're sinful, that, but, but that we're, we're prone to sin. It, it, it exacerbates our sin. But I thought the law was good. I mean, in, in, in Psalm 119 alone, it, it, it's, it's 176 verses rejoicing in the, the goodness of the law. It, it starts out by saying, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. But here in Romans 7, Paul is essentially saying, I didn't know I was a sinner until the law taught me what sin is. It wrecked me. But this isn't just Paul's experience. This is, this is the experience of Israel in receiving the commandments of God. In the hit musical Hamilton, they have a song called The Ten Dual Commandments. And commandment number four says, if you can't reach a peaceful agreement, you, you get a doctor out. It says you pay him in advance. You treat him with civility. You have him turn around so he can have deniability. In other words, he can act swiftly with a clear conscience because he can't be held accountable for what he doesn't know. Ignorance is bliss. Paul is saying before he came under the law, he didn't have a category for, for coveting. It wasn't that he didn't sin. 
He just didn't know what to call it. He didn't know to call it that. He didn't know it was a problem. Verse 8 says, Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And in verse 10, I found that the commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Meaning, Paul felt alive before he knew the command. Before receiving the law or being apart from the law, people feel alive. This is us in the year 2020. This is the general human experience today. The law didn't cause sin, but it does place a barrier that requires greater devotion from me if I'm going to feed my sinful desire. If I want what I want, I have to work harder to get it. I have to seek it more, and I do. Sin is a pre-existing condition. The problem is that all who came under the law believed that it was their means for salvation as a holy people. Leviticus 18.5 says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. Israel believed obedience to the law is what would make them alive. But as we've heard in, in earlier in Romans, Romans 3, Paul says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we became conscious of our sin. And in Romans 5, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Hmm. They might increase. The law was brought in so that the, the trespass might increase. That's interesting. What we find out about Israel is that despite their access to the revelation of God, it would seem that they ended up just like the rest of the immoral world around them. No matter how enthusiastic, no matter how devout, it didn't produce a death-to-life kind of change. And that's what we need. Nothing less. So if your version of Christianity is guilt-driven rule-following, what would lead you to believe that the results will be any different? And when we look at the state of the church today, maybe we should be asking if things have changed. Have people changed? Is God working? I mean, Christian Twitter is not exactly a holy ground for edifying conversation. But I'm crazy if I think that I'm so far off from what I'm seeing. No wonder people outside the church are surprised when they meet a Christian who's, I don't know, kind, loving, gentle. So when we look back at the law, it's reasonable to wonder if it was a broken system. I mean, maybe, maybe we can't be held accountable. Maybe we're not at fault. This is what the law is producing. You know, maybe it's, it's, it's I mean, it's human error, but maybe God's erred. But what we discover is that God's law worked exactly as he intended it to. And verse 13 is the, it's the surprising verse for me because it brings into focus what the law was working out. It's bringing into focus how the law worked. It says, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. 
You see, we needed sin to become so painstakingly obvious so that we might call sin for what it is. Sin. Why can't I do the very thing I want to do? Sin rules. It reigns. This is the part of our changing that we both need to and don't want to hear. God didn't put the law in place to convince good people that they weren't that bad. God put the law in place to show sinful people that we're not who we think we are. Who here watches the Olympics and, and, and thinks, give me four years in a trainer and I could do that? Who, how many of us have, have been singing in the, in the shower lately and think, you know, I, I'm ready to sign up for American Idol. Let's go. Looking at the holy standard of God should make sinful people more aware of their sin. At the very least, it should lead you to conclude, I'm not like that. I, I can't be like that. I can't, I can't do that. And not only are we not like that, but sin used the law to produce in us more sin. That sin might become utterly sinful. I had a friend who, who struggled with sexual sin. And so he set up a, a filter that would limit his web browsing. And he asked me if I'd be willing to receive emails for, for accountability. I said, absolutely. I'd love, love to help. I'd love to, to serve you in that way. I'd love to walk alongside you in that. And the problem was, he was a pretty tech-savvy guy. And so he could work around the filter without it signaling an alert, which kind of defeated the whole purpose. But the added degree of difficulty actually made it even more enticing for him. When the heart desires something not permitted, it doesn't shrivel, does it? It just finds new and more deceptive ways to get what it wants. Do you know this about yourself? Are you aware of your heart doing this? We must learn to identify the sinful, wicked ways in us. It is a mercy that we call sin, sin. That we see the law, that we see these things being exposed in us. But we must also learn to trust God's decisive change of us. We must learn to trust God's decisive change of us. Now, some have debated in, in the end of Romans 7, if, if the end of Romans 7 is describing the, the pre-Christian experience or the post-conversion experience. And I myself have, have debated and felt the conflict at war within me on this. There, there are brilliant minds who come to different conclusions, and I don't for one moment think that I'm in that conversation with them, okay? I'm not on their level, but I do believe that Paul is talking about a pre-Christian experience. That's where I've, I've personally landed on this. And there are compelling reasons either way. There are compelling reasons to, to, to think this is pre-Christian. There's compelling reasons to think that this is post-Christianity, post-conversion. But the, the reason that I found most convincing for me is that verse 14 describes the experience of being sold as a slave to sin. And in verse 23, the waging war that made one a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. I don't think that accurately describes the Christian's experience and would seem to contradict what Paul is just talking about in Romans 6 about being slaves to sin no longer but being slaves to righteousness. More specifically, I think Paul is, is characterizing the common experience of people who have received the law, the Torah. 
They desire to know the law and to obey it, but what they've come to discover is that they can't. That they must need something outside of themselves. That's the law working. But that's our struggle. That's their struggle. That's what they struggled with. On this side of heaven, I don't think we're promised to never deal with sin again. Sinlessness is something that we will enjoy in eternity. But at present, the war does rage on. The Christian should expect ongoing conflict with temptation and sin. I mean, Galatians and 1 John both speak to this reality. But what I think Romans 7 and Romans 8 together are trying to show us is that we're not owned by sin anymore. It does not rule us. We're not bound to perpetual failure. Here's what's new to the Christian's experience. You are no longer controlled by your sinful flesh. You are no longer controlled by your sinful flesh, even when it feels like it. You must know the difference. Your struggle with sin is not the same as being owned by it. So many times in my faith, I've been discouraged to think, God can never really love me. He can never really love me because I'm just running from one sin to another. What good am I? I can never come out of this. But for those who are in the Spirit, that's not true. That is an outdated view of yourself. Yes, you struggle. Yes, you sin. But maturing in the Christian life doesn't mean that you should be overwhelmed by the frequency of your sin, but rather maturing is the ability to call sin, sin, and the power to overcome it through the strength of the Spirit of God in you. And guess what? Jesus is becoming more influential in your life. He is gaining ground. We're going to need to be honest about some things that are hard to hear. That's true. But God has made a change of you through the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. This is what we're promised. German theologian Hermann Boving said, In all churches, there are conditions, errors, and defections which are not in harmony with the Christian life. Conditions, errors, and defections which are not in harmony with the Christian life. In other words, when, when Paul went around spreading the gospel and planting churches, he never had the expectation that the church would one day look like a morally, morally elite country club. He always knew that sin would be waging war against its members, but in a losing battle. So let's not be afraid to admit this, church. There is sin present among our members. There is. Pastor Lawrence asked me earlier, earlier this week, what if we all walked around with a sign on our backs that stated our biggest sin struggles? Some of us just immediately got uncomfortable there, right? Now, obviously, we're not going to do that. We're not going to encourage people to do that. But in a community being transformed by the gospel, I think we'd feel compelled to protect and build up the body. I think our prayer lives would get pretty lively. We just might be surprised at how faithful God is to use us as instruments of change in the lives of others around us. What a church that would be. Verses 17 and 18 say, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. 
For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Let me say this again, how Paul says it in Romans 8, 9. You are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. What is so amazing about real gospel community is that God empowers us to do the very thing we fear to do, to be honest about our sin. But Christians should be the most honest, of people, most honest people about their sin. We don't boast in it. We don't hide from it. We don't encourage one another with new strategies for self-help to overcome it. But rather, we rejoice and boldly profess our faith in the saving work of Christ on the cross because through Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That means we can talk about sin in the past tense, at least in this way. Do you remember how sin used to, to wreck us and we couldn't do anything about it? Man, we are so weak. But wow, is Jesus strong. He's given us something to do about it. We are constantly being invited to repent and believe the gospel anew in every area of our lives. And God is a very present help in addressing our need. The sting of death, of condemnation, has been made null and void by the redeeming work of the Father through the Son. Our response should be gratitude. Praise the Lord for what He is doing, what He has done, what He's accomplished. Now, Romans 8, 8 says, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God, which means there's a division between us and God that we've come to realize can't be reconciled on our part. So how do we transfer realms? How do we change? Romans 8 tells us by the Spirit. From a definitional standpoint, a miracle is a welcomed, unexplainable act of God. So life in the Spirit is more miracle than human reason because it's more God than us. We live out this life transformation through the power of the Spirit taking up residence in us. When Paul begins Romans 8 by saying, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's not talking about making a payment plan. We don't have to worry about Jesus defaulting on a loan. What, what, if, it, what if he can't do it? What if it doesn't go through? No, he's paid in full. Therefore there is now Right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which brings us to our final encouragement. We should rejoice in this news. We should rejoice in God's work by encouraging one another in the Spirit. By encouraging one another in the Spirit. When I read the beginning of chapter 8, the question that immediately came to my mind was, what does it mean to be in the Spirit? And to be honest, the question behind that question, the real question that I wanted to ask was, what evidence can I find to assure me that I'm in the Spirit? How can I, how can I know that I am in the Spirit? What, what evidence can I be, find to, to assure me that I belong to God? When I look at Romans 8, am I going to find me? Or am I going to find unfulfilled longing? And that's how I know Romans 8 is for me. That line of thinking is what makes me so sure God has figured this out for me. God has thought through everything. Because Christianity is not a prove-it religion. 
It's a God in me faith. The better question would be, how can I be sure God is for me? That, that changes the conversation altogether. And Paul's response is dripping all over the page with God's work on our behalf. Here is where we discover what the law could not do. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law could not provide a way for sinful people to uncloak their sin. So God steps into the realm of the flesh and brings us up into the realm of the Spirit. This is God's work in us. Romans 7.10 says, The very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. And so we died. But Romans 8.10 says, But if Christ is in you, if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. What a difference a chapter makes. Those are very different narratives on our lives. Those are very different stories that we're living out. Jesus has exhausted all condemnation that sin could credit against us. He needed no assistance Jesus needed no breather before completing this task. He has fully extinguished the flames of bondage, our bondage to sin and death on his own. Let me put it another way from, from our angle. To go into remission from a life-wrecking disease means the reduction or, or disappearance of symptoms. Remission is exciting news, but it doesn't equate to being quite out of the woods yet. Remission still leaves the door open for relapse. There's still a possibility that the illness could come back, that it could return. But what God has done in Christ makes a relapse into the bondage of sin and death an impossibility. It is sure, this is what God has done for us. And I love this because it means we can't have a God who's just incidental in our lives. Someone who's just here to help when we need Him, but who's never a major player. No. God is the major player in our lives. God must be essential as the one who has given us a whole new identity and outlook on what it means to be alive. Waypoint. I think we need to constantly hear God say this to us. It's not you. It's me. But when we hear those words, God's not breaking our hearts as He lets us down slowly. He's mending them as He invites us to come alive in the Spirit. When people look at your life, do they admire you because you look like you've got your act together? Or do they wonder about a hope unseen? Is your life easy to explain from human agency? Or does your life make God impossible to overlook? Too often I find myself struggling to make my life look easier than it is. Too often I find myself living as if my limited human faculties are all of God. But God is so gracious and patient as He gains ground in our lives. And He credits us more than we ever seem to credit Him of what He's doing. We're very aware of what we're doing. But what is God doing? What's He up to?
Romans 8, 5 through 9 tell us that those who are in the Spirit have a new mindset, which means there really is a new you. Maybe it doesn't feel as radical as you want it to be. You wish that it meant more right now. But who plants a tree and then a month later asks about progress and responds by saying, no fruit yet? No, we have to learn to listen to what God is saying is now true of us. British pastor Sam Albury puts it this way. He says, yes, there's a lot of mess still. There's mixed motives. There's ongoing failings. But your most fundamental longing now is for Christ. You are someone in whom the Spirit of Jesus dwells. You have the Spirit of God in you. That's what God has said of you. That's what He says. That's what God says of you. And as a church, our aim is to live out this reality among our members. What happens when we start acting, not just like we are being changed by the Spirit, but that others around us are being changed by the Spirit? That God is on the move. And God is on the move here at Waypoint, I promise you. We don't just tell ourselves we're new in God, but in Christian community, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who come alongside us as instruments of change, as we are being transformed by the gospel that saves. Let me give you an example of, of what I mean by this, and, and, and we'll close here. February 10th, 2019 was a, a monumental day in my life. You have no idea. This happened at, at, at Waypoint right here. And so as we're celebrating the story of our church today, and, and I guess we'll, we'll celebrate more next week too, I thought this would be appropriate. On February 10th, I got to preach my first sermon as an officially ordained pastor. And at that moment, at that moment, I didn't feel like a pastor. Not at all. And there have been many occasions since then where I haven't felt like a pastor. You don't just flip a switch. But Waypoint, God has used you so tremendously in my life to produce what I hope has been some semblance of growth. Maybe you would attest to that, I don't know. But some of you, some of you have voiced how proud you were to celebrate that day with me. You encouraged me by sharing how you'd seen me grow. Some of you even called me pastor. Some of you have gone out of your way to acknowledge me as a pastor because you've wanted to encourage me. And I can't tell you how humbling that is. Some of you have given honest feedback of, of, on areas of weakness. The Lord put it on your heart and with gentleness and love, you sought to make areas of immaturity more mature in my life. I have so valued and appreciated that. What a wonderful way to grow. To see God work through you. Some of you have gone out of your way to encourage and speak life into me. I know if it wasn't for, for COVID, I would be running into Miss Ruby and she would be telling me to stay in the Word. Stay in the Word. She'd say, I know that I tell you that every other week, but it's essential. You need to stay in the Word. And I'd say, you're right. She's right. I need that reminder. I need to hear that. It's life-giving to me. I value that. My point, I believe this is a glimpse into what it looks like to treat the body as those who are in the Spirit who have a new mindset, who are truly alive in Christ, 
who have been changed from death to life. This is how we live out our lives among each other. That we treat each other as we really are. As we really are in the Spirit. That God has really made us alive. And so we engage one another, whether encouragement, whether correction, lifting each other up, edifying the body, as those who are alive in the Spirit. This is how we change. This is what God has done. We call sin, sin. So let's be honest with ourselves. We trust God's decisive change of us. He's really done it. He's really made you new. And we rejoice in God's work by encouraging others in the Spirit. He's moving, church. Let's allow His work to go unignorable in the life of our church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you so, so grateful for the work that you have accomplished in the Spirit. God, we know we, the, same, the same Spirit that has raised Jesus from the dead and, and seats him at the right hand of the Father is the same Spirit alive in us. God, yes, we, we struggle with sin. We face temptation, conflict. We struggle and strive. But God, may we not strive in our own strength any longer. May we strive in the strength of the power of the Spirit in us. God, that makes your work unignorable. God, we are walking miracles. Thanks be to your name. God, may we praise you. May we worship you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.